Hey there, before we get started, just a little disclaimer. The following episode is going to be based on a topic that some people may find a little sensitive. That is black history, faith communities, non-belief, and the way those things all play on each other. With that said, we welcome you. But if you feel like you may want to put this off for another time when you're ready to go down that rabbit hole, let's go. This episode is for the History Geeks. We're rejoining Jeffrey B. Perry, his autobiography, and his treatment for more of the one and only Hubert Harrison. He's been called the Black Socrates by Joel A. Rogers. He low-key mentored Marcus Garvey and rubbed shoulders with A. Philip Randolph and Arturo Schomburg. Whether you know these names or not, stick around, because we're going back in for a rich history lesson on this Black radical atheist, Pan-African socialist thought leader, named Hubert Harrison. This and more on Free thought, stories, gender, politics, blackness, education, doubt, critique, science, achievement, engineering, Africa, America, <laughs> and, and more on For better or for worse, woke is one of the most overused and least understood terms in popular use these days. And on nearly all sides of the debate, it's been kind of a plaything, something used to shut down or corrupt conversation. Until the next Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, or you name the person who is the latest sacrifice to the god of white supremacy, which is incidentally the only god in which there's sufficient evidence for its existence, or at least arguably so. Which is why it's so fascinating when an opportunity to learn about Hubert Harrison comes along. His life and movement really show that there isn't anything new under the sun when it comes to understanding and countering oppressive systems. After the break, we'll rejoin our legacy presentation with our very special guest and author, Dr. Jeffrey B. Perry, on the Black Socrates, the iconoclastic Hubert Harrison. Are you currently on a faith journey of your own? Are you questioning, seeking to find community in a way that's outside of traditional religious institutions, or reimagining yourself in relationship to your community and your surroundings as a formerly religious person? You're not as alone as you think you are. There are communities and people and organizations that exist to help people like you in your own journey along the way of life in your questions, in humanism, free thought, in social justice, education, LGBTQ advocacy, scholarships, and more. You are absolutely not the only one. There are others like you, and we're organized, we're engaged, 
we're active, we're protesting, communicating, and we're trying to live healthy lives as best and ethically as we possibly can, and to have a little fun along the way. Learn more about some of these organizations, like the ones that have produced this podcast, Where We're Headed. You can find out more at AmericanHumanist.org and BlackNonBelievers.org. That's the American Humanist Association at AmericanHumanist.org. And on Facebook, search us at Black Nonbelievers of DC and Black Nonbelievers at BlackNonBelievers.org. Find us online, support today, check us out. We last left off with a newly orphaned Hubert Harrison leaving his native St. Croix for New York City in 1900. Upon arriving in New York, he went straight towards Harlem for a while to live with his sister before eventually branching off and starting his own family. But Harlem would be where he lived for the rest of his life. Starting off as a street orator, he developed into a prominent black activist and intellectual on topics like religion, political organizing, immigration, class, and what was later called Pan-Africanism. At a time when some of the most well-known black leaders were downplaying education or promoting the limiting of it to the black bourgeois, Harrison openly promoted the value of critical learning, self-governance, and the written word for all black people. A hundred years later, Harrison's depth and body of work is only now beginning to emerge from obscurity. Arthur Jeffrey B. Perry draws connections from Harrison straight down through A. Philip Randolph, Richard B. Moore, Marcus Garvey, the Black Panthers, American Socialism, Malcolm X, and many more. Perry rejoins us today on the conclusion of Legacy. Thank you, Ro, very much. And thanks to Black Non-Believers DC and to those who are in attendance today. And that poem by Hubert Harrison was a response to Rudyard, Clipping, uh, Rudyard Kipling's The White Man's Burden, right? And uh, Harrison had, had a response, a very wonderful, strong response. Um, I just want to go over briefly what we did in the first session, which uh, will be available online shortly, I believe. And then we'll have this one. And uh, hopefully you can take advantage of both. Um, but I'm just going to highlight certain things I want to make sure people get, and if people weren't here the first time, that they know. So regarding the books, this, here's volume one of the Harrison biography, Hubert Harrison, The Voice of Harlem Radicalism, 1883 to 1918. It's Columbia University Press. Here's volume two, which came out le uh, about less than a year ago, Hubert Harrison, The Struggle for Equality, 1918 to 1927. Thousand pages. <laughs> first one was only 620 pages. It, to combine, they are the first two-volume, multi-volume biography of an Afro-Caribbean, and only the first of an African, uh, only the fourth of an African American. He is a total giant of Black history and Afro-Caribbean history. And these two books, as Ro pointed out, can be obtained at 20% discount from Columbia University Press. Just want to mention a couple of other things that are available that Harrison did. Um, this book is available from Wesleyan University Press. It came out 2001, but within the last year, they finally put out an ebook version. And this is a Hubert Harrison reader. And um, I edited it and introduced it. And it's got a hundred and I think about 150 articles and they're broken into categories and stuff. I think people will find that very useful. And uh, as a matter of fact, 
at the um, in New York, a fellow named Sean Ahern, a friend of mine, is leading a class currently on uh, readings from this book. And if people, uh, I think it's at the uh, Freedom Freedom School or some such on West Thirty Seventh Street. And while they ask for donations, you don't have to pay, and people can sign and join in and everything like that. Speak, listen, whatever. And uh, it's readings from Harrison's book. And then another book I edited, uh, very important. There was a version edited by Paul Coates, who's a very good editor, um, Black Classics Press. But this one I edited was a lot of notes. And also I included two things of particular note that weren't in uh, the other editions, uh, reprint editions. One, if you can read that, this is the, the full title of the book. When Africa Awakes, the inside story of the stirrings and strivings of the new Negro in the Western world. He's writing about the new Negro. This book comes out in 1920, and he's got in 53 articles between 1917 and 1920 on the militant new Negro movement. That is eight to five years before Elaine Locke publishes his book. So this redoes a lot of the history that's out there. Um, and uh, also about particular note is um, the, the Coates version didn't have Harrison's introductory and it's a very important introductory. So I encourage people to get this. This is from Diasporic Africa Press in Brooklyn. It might only be $10, $15 or something, but it's worth getting. Um, and a couple other pieces I just want to mention before we get into some more of this. Um, we spoke a lot about Harrison and free thought. And in the, um, I think it was the July, August, 2017 truth seeker. That's a major free thought publication. that has been coming out since the 1870s. Um, they, they, the feature article was on Hubert Harrison. It was a piece I did. Here's the article. I, unfortunately, I don't have the cover with me right now, but it, it's Hubert Harrison Pioneer African-American activist in the free thought. And I think people in the free thought movement, I think people would like that, you know, if you can get that. And here's one I just, just puts a smile on my face because I received this yesterday. Um, friends of mine at the Botto House in Halden, New Jersey. Halden is the town right next to Patterson, New Jersey. And it's where the Patterson strikers in 1913, when they had the great Patterson strike, would have to go to hold rallies because they were outlawed in Patterson. Here's a picture of the Botto House. And in the Botto House book, which just came out on the 1913 strike, uh, here it is, I think it's, get it. You'll see a picture of, there he is, Hubert Harrison and Elizabeth Gurley Flynn and what's, what I really appreciate about this book is 40,000 copies are being distributed to fourth graders in the state of New Jersey. So they're getting to learn a little bit, maybe about, maybe about Harrison if they dig a little bit. Um, so we got that. Now I want to go over, uh, oh, on the Harrison biography, by the way, volume, both volumes were nominated for the Deutscher Award. They didn't win it. And the second volume was nominated for the Pulitzer Prize. This is serious work, you know? So uh, I wanna encourage people to read it. And their books are very important with their footnoting, particularly volume two, which was finished after a lot more stuff became available online. I often have footnotes, 
not only to Harrison's articles if they're available online, but to the books he's reviewing, complete books, because before 1923, these books can be online. So you can really do your own digging and researching. Um, all right, so I'm gonna move ahead. Oh, another thing I wanna mention, very important. My webpage has all kinds of free information on Hubert Harrison. And that webpage is www.jeffreybperry.net. That's my name, www.jeffreybperry.net. And particularly in the right-hand column, if you're on a big screen, uh, it's one of the numbered uh, sections is writings by writings, articles, uh, articles, uh, uh, video and audio about Hubert Harrison, some title, something along those lines. And er, virtually everything there is free. I, if there's something that's not free, I can't remember it right now. But um, so I encourage people to go there. Now, I'm, I want to move very swiftly through what we, some of the things we covered last time, just for those who might not have been here, but if even if you were, just to drive these points home a little bit. Um, the historian Joel A. Rogers in World's Great Men of Color, amidst chapters on Booker T. Washington, W.E. Du Bois, William Monroe Trotter, and Marcus Garvey, described Hubert Harrison as perhaps the foremost Afro-American intellect of his time and one of, a great, one of America's greatest minds. And Rogers adds, no one worked more seriously and indefatigably to enlighten his fellow men, and none of the African-American leaders of his time had a saner and more effective program. Extraordinarily high praise. Labor and civil rights uh, leader, uh, A. Philip Randolph, described Harrison as the father of Harlem radicalism. Oh, by the way, here we go. Father of Harlem Radicalism. This is uh, Friends in Newark have produced this shirt. When the first volume came out, they had a different shirt that they produced. And uh, it's nice. It's nice to have them, to wear them. Uh, Richard B. Moore described Harrison as above all his contemporaries in the steady emphasis that a vital aim was the liberation of the oppressed African and other colonial people. Um, I want to, I'm just skipping ahead from my notes. Um, Okay, Harrison played unique leading roles in the largest class radical movement, socialism, and the largest race radical movement, the new Negro Garvey movement of his era. He was a major influence on the class radical Randolph, the race radical Garvey, and other militant new Negroes, in quotes, that's the phrase they used, and common people in the period around World War I. Um, W.A. Domingo from Jamaica, uh, one of Harrison's friends and followers, explained that Garvey, like the rest of us, Randolph Moore, Grace Campbell, Chandler Owen, Cyril Briggs, all followed Hubert Harrison. Harrison was the leader. He was the pioneer. Um, he also played um, leading roles in, uh, besides the, the, the class conscious movements, in the race conscious movements. So, and a little more specifically, he was the foremost black organizer, agitator, and theoretician in the Socialist uh, Party during its 1912 heyday. And as a race radical, he founded the first organization, the Liberty League, in 1917, and the first newspaper, The Voice, a newspaper for the New Negro, and a newspaper of the New Negro Movement in 1917. Then in 1920, 
He assumed uh, effective uh, managing editor duties at the Negro World, the paper of Garvey's uh, Universal Negro Improvement Association. And when Harrison was editor, the paper really swept the globe. Um, he was, um, a couple of other things I just wanted to mention again. Uh, okay. Harrison, besides all this, besides being the most class conscious of the race radicals and the most race conscious of the class radicals, is a key link in the two great trends in the civil rights black liberation struggle. The labor and civil rights trend associated with Randolph and Martin Luther King and the, um, uh, and the race and nationalist trend associated with Marcus Garvey and Malcolm X. You see roots coming all the way back to Harrison and all these. And I, I go into this in, in volume one and volume two, I talk about this a little. And he's also an extraordinary radical internationalist and his various quotes throughout the book and various examples of his radical internationalism. I focused last session on Harrison as a free thinker. And I talk about how, oh, I talk about how his diary, um, and I wanna step back for a second. Harrison's papers I placed at the Columbia University Rare Book and Manuscript Library website. You can go to that website. And if you go to their digital collections, you can see Hubert H. Harrison papers. They have put up online over 1,200 items from the Harrison papers, including over 230 pages of his diary for free. You can read them, you can look at them. He writes very clearly. It's eye-opening. And they also have images and photos and things like this. They've done a very nice job. And in his diary, his second diary, the first one got lost. He, he writes um, about how he broke from religion. And he writes, it's a letter to a Miss Frances Reynolds Kaiser, an outstanding woman activist in her own right, whose work I detail a bit in volume one. And he goes, um, he says, uh, he reviewed all the literature and tried to make sense of all the previous literature and the current literature on Christianity. And he just couldn't buy it, so to speak. What had gone was the authenticity of the Bible. That which I had been taught was the word of God. I now had a new belief, agnosticism. I said belief, what I did mean was philosophy of life. And then he says, like Huxley, and he's referring to Thomas Huxley, I refuse to put faith in that which does not rest on sufficient evidence. I chose instead to look the universe in the face, to believe in the sanctity of human nature and to develop a deep sense of responsibility for my actions. I prefer to go to the grave with my, with my eyes wide open. I love that quote. Uh, now I am a, an agnostic as Thomas Huxley was and my principles are the same. And to Huxley, agnosticism was not a creed, but a method, the essence of which was a fundamental axiom of modern science. Just a few things more. Free thought in the era uh, when Harrison was active, uh, advocated uh, thought free of religious dogma. They emphasized the human origins of the Old and New Testaments, denied the infallibility of the Bible, denied the existence of heaven and hell, emphasized reason over supernatural authority, advocated free inquiry, free discussion, free publicity of ideas, and advocated the scientific method. And I list hosts of very important free thinkers in that era. And I also list important black free thinkers. 
including Jay Rogers, Claude McKay from Jamaica, Cyril Briggs from Nevis St. Kitts, Richard B. Moore from Barbados, Hodge Kiernan from Montserrat, and W.E.B. Du Bois, as I pointed out previously, as indicated by his biographer, David Levering Lewis, was an agnostic and an anti-clerical, although that wasn't emphasized in a lot of the writings on Du Bois. Um, Harrison starts getting politically active. Um, he's active in, in, uh, with, with the free thinkers a little bit, but he starts getting more politically active around 1909, 1910. Um, he starts working in a post office in 1907. 1909, he gets married. He would eventually have five children. But while working in the post office, he starts keeping his own, own scrapbooks, uh, a couple more of which I have to place at uh, the library, one of these re uh, repositories. Um, but in his libraries, he considered Booker T. Washington, his phrase was a subservient. Uh, Booker T. said of President Theodore Roosevelt, quote, I will oppose nothing that he wants done and will help forward all that he desires to ha have done. So Harrison felt that Booker T. was uh, conservative and Harrison was very dissatisfied with the Republican Party and its role in advancing the cause of the, quote, Negro. People, if people remember back um, earlier, it was said that the Republican Party was the ship and all else was the sea because that was where blacks were pl placing their hope in the Republicans. And um, but ha by Harrison's coming of age in 1910, he was very uh, uh, dissatisfied with the Republican Party. And when Booker T goes to uh, Europe and issues some statements, Harrison writes a letter uh, to the, uh, one of the New York dailies saying, essentially, Booker T, you're free to uh, say what you want, but you should tell the truth. And Booker T and Emmett Scott and the postmaster named Morgan, who the building in New York on West 39th Street, the largest in New York, is named after those three got together and uh, Harrison was summarily removed from his postal employment. It was a devastating blow, uh, blow which would shape the rest of his life. If you like what you're hearing, or you're curious about these and other subjects, visit our Legacy Video Program Archive. It's online on our Black Nonbelievers YouTube channel. You can look it up at Black Nonbelievers Inc., all one word, directly. You can find every Legacy video from Season 1 and Season 2 there, plus much, much more. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe. See you online. Harrison also, in this period, right around 1911, he started um, writing some criticisms of Abraham Lincoln. Um, and it was because, as he was trying to get people to think independently and break from uh, the Republican Party, you know, Republican Party, as I said, it, the saying was, uh, the Republican Party is the ship, all else is the sea. That was thrown about quite a bit. And uh, Harrison wanted to have people take a deeper look. He understood Lincoln did some good things, 
but he he developed some criticisms in some talks uh, he would give in some writings. And I'm just going to point out a few things about Lincoln that Harrison wrote that people might not be familiar with. Um, in his August 27th, 1858, Freeport, Illinois, Illinois debate with Stephen A. Douglas, Lincoln explained that he, he was not opposed to the fugitive slave law. He was not in favor of abolishing slavery in the nation's capital, and he did not desire to have Congress exercise the power of abolition. Um, among other Lincoln statements that Harrison would later cite uh, for later use were, I am not, this is Lincoln, I am not nor ha have ever been in favor of bringing about in any way the social and political equality of the white and black races. I am not in favor of Negro citizenship. I have no objection to the proposed Corwin Amendment uh, prohibiting federal interference with slavery being made express and irrevocable. That's what the amendment would do. We'd make slavery uh, uh, irrevocable. And he said, no, I don't want to interfere. Uh, uh, I don't want to uh, interfere with any efforts prohibiting that, um, that amendment, prohibiting the making of slavery irrevocable. And finally, uh, Harrison stated that Lincoln liked to cite my paramount object of this struggle, this is a civil war, is to save the union and is neither to save or destroy slavery. If, if I could save the union without freeing any slave, I would do it. All right, moving on. Now, Harrison, gets, uh, he gets fired by Booker T. Harrison also has criticisms of W.E.B. Du Bois in this period. Du Bois is the main uh, alternative uh, amongst black leadership to uh, Booker T. And Du Bois is, is the editor of the Crisis Magazine. And Harrison's criticisms, particularly on Du Bois and the notion of the talented 10th, who Du Bois says are the educated and gifted who must be made leaders of, the, of thought and missionaries of culture among their people. Harrison argued that the talented 10th hadn't provided leadership that was needed they should come down from their Mount Sinai and get amongst the people. And Harrison didn't think that the, quote, colored leadership was preordained to lead. He got very active in the Socialist Party in 1911 and 1912. He wrote the first major series on Blacks, on the Negro and Socialism in The Call in 1911. That was uh, New York Weekly and in the International Socialist Review in 1912. Some of his major ideas included uh, that racial oppression was socio-historical, not biological. He advocated a new litmus test for socialists, championed the cause of African-Americans as a revolutionary doctrine. He proposed that the duty of all socialists was to oppose race prejudice, and he initiated a colored socialist club. Socialist party in that period was uh, divided essentially into two main wings, the political evolutionary socialists who wanted to reach socialism by elections, etc., and the industrial revolutionary socialists who wanted more direct action. And Harrison tried to appeal to each wing and saying, well, if you want votes, you need black votes. And if you want militant action, you need black workers, etc. Um, and uh, he thought uh, the answer to why no socialism in the U.S. concerned the failure 
to challenge white supremacy and engage the African-American population more, more, more directly in the struggle. Um, to another couple of sayings from Harrison in this period. In 1911, he wrote, politically, the Negro is the touchstone of the modern democratic idea. And I mentioned last time, touchstone, please remember what it is. It's a black stone. You rub the metal against it to see if it's the gold or whatever metal you're trying to determine is really what it's purported to be. And it's a great metaphor because uh, you put take any social issue and how are black people faring, housing, education, welfare, et cetera. And what are we gonna do about it? So Harrison writes, politically Negro is a touchstone of the modern democratic idea. Presence of the Negro puts our democracy to the test and reveals the falsity of it. And true democracy and equality implies a revolution startling to even think of. Um, one other major Harrison thought that I wanna share with you for now is um, Harrison writes, the 10 million Negroes of America form a group that is more essentially proletarian, working class, and under slavery, they were the most thoroughly exploited of the American proletariat. This is a very profound concept because many historians have had, had ignored it and still ignore it some, you know, to this day. Um, and his voice, his, his thoughts there are later echoed um, by W.E.B. Du Bois, um, in, and particularly in Black Reconstruction in 1935. But understanding Black workers as proletarian is important for three major reasons. It helps us to, uh, it, to see and learn from uh, examples of valiant struggles in labor history. Too often the black struggles were excluded from labor history and we didn't draw from them the importance of them. Two, it helps to tear the covers from centuries of white labor betrayal and apologists. You know, well, white labor didn't support blacks because they weren't part of the labor movement. That's those type of arguments. And three, and this is what Harrison's, I think is very important, and it leads to the work of Theodore W. Allen, the other person I write about who writes about the invention of the white race. But uh, by understanding black enslaved labor as proletarian, it helps us to understand the invention and role of the white race as a ruling class social control formation in response to labor solidarity. So all this stuff, again, is mentioned in volume one and, um, and in, in the talk last time. So I just wanna, uh, the other things, again, Harrison spoke as many as 23 times a week. He went down to Wall Street and spoke on socialism for hours um, on socialism uh, in a precursor to Occupy Wall Street. He um, campaigned 20, 23 times a week for Debs in the 1912 presidential race. And he supported the industrial workers of the world, the IWW. He was with Elizabeth Gurley Flynn, Big Bill Haywood at the Patterson strike, what I mentioned earlier. And Harrison eventually, because the Socialist Party didn't take up the cause, Harrison wanted them before the 1912 convention, he said, Southernism or socialism. He wrote to them, what's going to be the direction of this party. And they didn't even address it. And he got increasingly disenchanted with the socialists, some of their practices and their failure to struggle 
strongly against white supremacy. So by 1914, he was leaving the Socialist Party and he put forth what I think was arguably the most important thoughts in relation to the Socialist Party in the early 20th century. And that was, he argued that um, it was one of the most, arguably the most profound but least heated criticism in US left history. He stated simply that the Socialist Party, like the labor movement, has insisted on white race first and class after, that it put the white race first before class. And it's too bad that we didn't learn from that and draw from it and, uh, um, you know, address it for the past hundred years or so. So after Harrison leaves the Socialist Party, that those last quotes, I, I, I put the word white in brackets because that's what he's talking about. Uh, they're not exactly how he wrote it, but it, that it put race first is what he said. Um, Harrison gets involved in 1914-15 in a radical forum, free thought, free speech, birth control activists. He teaches at the modern school with free thinkers and uh, others. And then between 1915 and 1917, it, we see the founding of the new Negro movement as Harrison begins to move towards building a new Negro movement that would be race conscious, internationalist and mass based, a movement for political equality, social justice, civic opportunity and economic power geared toward the Negro common people and urging defense of self, family and race in the face of lynching and white supremacy. He was urged in that direction by Gertrude John Johnson, who worked at the 135th Street Public Library, Gertrude Cohen, excuse me, who worked at the 135th Street Library, and, and James Weldon Johnson, who was a writer for the New York Age, the city's leading Black Weekly, and also the author of the um, Black National Anthem. And uh, also influenced by Charles Gilpin, uh, who, whose work he appreciated. And, uh, uh, and in watching Gilpin on the stage, Harrison commented how the Negro theater of that period revealed the social mind of the Negro. So he tried to draw lessons from the theater. And as he would do throughout his life, he'd work, work on and think about the interrelation between art and politics. <coughs> as he was founding this new Negro movement, A. Philip Randolph and Chandler Owen followed him. He started to try and build this race unity movement from the bottom up. Uh, and uh, Harrison commented, the fault with previous efforts of leaders was that the uniters, such as Booker T. Washington and W.E. Du Bois, had generally gone at the problem from the wrong end. They had begun at the top when they should have begun at the bottom. To attempt to unite the intellectuals at the top was not the same thing as uniting the Negro masses, the key to racial solidarity. Interestingly, in his 1940 autobiography, Dusk of Dawn, Du Bois reached a similar conclusion, but he didn't reach that conclusion when Harrison was alive. Um, Harrison founds the New Negro Movement in 1617. It's consistent with all those beliefs and practices that I just described, and it's not dependent on whites at all. He wants to mobilize the Negro's political power. Uh, and things that were within the Negro's control without depending on or waiting for the cooperative action of white people because it might not come. 
founding meeting was June 12th, 1917 on 132nd Street. Uh, uh, rally, Harrison called a rally. Uh, Woodrow Wilson had just led the U.S. into World War I to make the South safe for democracy. And Harrison uh, uh, said on his, po- on his flyer calling for the event, said, let's make the South safe for democracy. And uh, Adam Clayton Powell Sr. was there, spoke. Harrison was a featured speaker. And also coming up to speak on a stage that day was Marcus Garvey, young Marcus Garvey. Um, uh, it was made clear that Harrison's Liberty League represented a breaking away of the new Negroes, as he explained it, from the, uh, from the grip of the old time leaders. It opposed lynching, segregation, disfranchisement. It advocated in, uh, in second. It advocated enforcement of the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment and um, federal anti-lynching legislation. It advocated for a political voice militant armed self-defense, um, and uh, it was very internationalist and expressed its responsibility to the 1,700 millions who are colored black and brown and yellow and who seek to live free from the domination of a white minority. Very interestingly, the Liberty League developed a tricolor flag whose colors were black, brown, and yellow, and Harrison explained because that's the colors we are. Um, and within a few years, Garvey would adopt a tricolor and switch the colors to black, uh, red, and green, which people now know today. But in this period, 1917, Garvey joins Harrison's organization. For people familiar with Marcus Garvey, he really doesn't join anyone's organization. But he joins Harrison's organization. Uh, East St. Louis, Illinois erupts in white labor-led attacks on the black community on July 2nd, around July 2nd, 1917. Harrison writes major editorials and calls for a major rally in protest of um, East St. Louis, over a thousand people in Harlem, which um, I just will point out, East St. Louis, Illinois is only 12 miles uh, from Ferguson, Missouri, where about four years ago, there were major protests over a killing in Ferguson. Um, and But here Harrison's doing it 100 years ago. He writes his first book, he, uh, which is actually a collection of his writings. It's entitled The Negro in the Nation in 1917. And then in 1918, Harrison and William Monroe Trotter, another major black leader, um, a bit older than Harrison, uh, convene a Liberty Congress in Washington, D.C., men and women from 35 states uh, there to protest the war and demand uh, uh, demand enforcement of the 13th, 14th, 15th Amendment and federal lynching legislation. And Jolie Spingarn is the head of the NAACP. He's a European-American, as, as were most of the leaders of the NAACP for quite a number of years. And Spingarn is the closest white friend of Du Bois, helps him financially at times, and uh, but he's something else. He's a major in military intelligence. That's that branch of the government that monitors the black in the radical community. And when he learns of the plans for Harrison and Trotter's Liberty Congress, he tries to, you know, get the people to get them to call it off. Trotter won't uh, won't bend, and he doesn't even bother trying to talk to Harrison you know that's going no place and um so then he convenes a meeting 
to uh, a week earlier with some editors, you know, to kind of steal the thunder. Um, but it, Harrison and Trotter meeting still has great significant weight. But also in that period, he talks with Du Bois, and I can't say that Du Bois makes his own decisions. But within that period, W. E. B. Du Bois, who is now the most prominent black leader in the country after Booker T. Washington's death, writes an editorial in 1918 uh, entitled "Close Ranks," uh, and in it he argues, "Let us, while this war lasts, forget our special grievances." And I put in parentheses what they were: lynching, segregation, and disfranchisement, and close ranks shoulder to shoulder with our own fellow, the white fellow citizens and allied nations that are fighting for democracy. We make no ordinary sacrifices, but we make it gladly and willingly with our eyes lifted to the hills. That's Du Bois's editorial. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back with more from Dr. Jeffrey B. Perry. This, I mean, it wasn't. It wasn't. It was just some some blog somewhere, some blog somewhere of this conservative Muslim who was defending uh, the death penalty for apostates, and he was like, "Well, here's the case," and I think his his reasoning shows why it's really important to talk about why not only is the religion harmful, it that it's false, that it's literally not true, uh, because his argument was, well, you have these you have these apostates and they're talking about they're criticizing the faith and they're creating doubt uh, among the believers and then and then people have to you know and, and then people are leaving the faith and what we're really risking here is our neighbors and our communities and our friends burning in hellfire forever and that's what these uh, that's what these apostates want and that's what and that that that's where it will go if they get their way and if we love our neighbors if we love our nation and our communities we don't want them to burn forever in hellfire uh, and so uh, the the it's actually quite it's a, it's a it's a good thing it's a it's a compassionate thing to kill the apostate now so that they don't so that eternity you know people aren't good people aren't burning forever and I think this is why it's really important to always talk about literally why is this not even true you know not 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 just that it's harmful but that it's not true because because they can always, within their within their understanding of the way that the world is, they can always reformulate um, these uh, these variety of abuses as actually good in the long run. Um, and heaven and hell are a good way of doing that. It's incredibly important for us to intersectionalize this movement. There's intersectionality between the, the traditional atheist separation from church and state and teach science in the classroom issues and other issues of social justice. We're back. Let's jump right back in with Jeffrey's talk at Legacy on Hubert Harrison. And we'll rejoin him right at the point where Harrison strongly rebuts W.E.B. Du Bois's newly controversial article that he published called Close Ranks. Harrison takes him to task for that, as do others, because Harrison and, and other black leaders in particular know what the special grievances are. And they say, essentially, 
Du Bois, you, you, we may disagree on the war, but you don't have to take it there. You, you don't ha have to advocate uh, forgetting our special grievances. These should be put forward constantly. And um, I kind of end volume one with that, but I also begin volume two with that just as people transition. And in volume two, it's the struggle for equality. Um, now, the second volume details the extraordinary last nine and a half years of Harrison's life, which were lived at the edge of poverty because he's constantly looking for work. He has no steady employment for the most part. And, uh, and he's doing this, living, struggling, living at the edge of poverty in a U.S. shaped by capitalism, imperialism, white supremacy. He had been a leader in the struggle against those forces, but had found that the left and labor movements in the U.S. put the white race first before class. In that context, he deemed it a prior priority to work at developing an enlightened race consciousness, radical internationalism uh, among Negro people, especially the common people, in struggles for political equality against white supremacy and for radical social change. This second volume is presented in, in roughly chronicle, uh, chronological order and has four broad sections. Part one is 1918 to 19, covers his pioneering, seminal, and long ignored writings and work that gave direction to the militant New Negro movement he had founded and led. Part two from 1920 to 1922 details his outstanding contributions and influences as a writer for the editor of the, New, of the Negro world discusses his differences with Marcus Garvey, as well as his differences with Black Socialist publishing the, the Emancipator. These are people like A. Philip Randolph and uh, Chandler Owen, uh, and makes clear that Harrison's writings and literary influence, including his book review and poetry for the people columns, contributed significantly to the climate leading up to Alain Locke's 1925 publication, The New Negro. Parts three and four in this, in this second volume cover the period. Part three covers 1922 to 1924 and focuses on Harrison's prolific and wide-ranging writings and speaking efforts as an independent freelance educator, including his work as a public lecturer with the New York City Board of Education and as a regular columnist for the Boston Chronicle. And part four examines his innovative and more broadly unitary efforts in his last years, including the founding of the International Colored Unity League and its organ, the voice of the Negro. Now going through these chapters a little bit, there are 20 chapters, so I'm gonna just briefly highlight certain key features in them. In the first chapter, we discuss Harrison's return to Harlem. He, uh, he tries to rejuvenate the voice after the uh, Liberty Congress. And um, he starts engaging in more public speaking, uh, talking on Negro leadership, education of the masses. And he's under surveillance and attempts at entrapment by the federal authorities. He's one of the very first black activists to be subject to that. Um, he, uh, his family was living at the edge of poverty and uh, at the time, 1918, he had four, a wife and four daughters. His, his fifth child, a son, William, would be born in 1920. Uh, Harrison, when he resurrected the voice, had an all black publishing company, uh, which included a lot of working people, majority were working people. But interestingly, in July, 1918, 
uh, Harrison informed readers of The Voice that one white man in Harlem had offered to put up uh, $10,000 in December 1917 to own the paper shipping partner with the editor. That was not the direction Harrison wanted to go, however. The offer was rejected. Now, that is an extraordinary sum of money back then. And this is important because as we look at the other prominent leaders of the day, one of the key questions I think is important always to look at is, you know, how, how did they follow the money? Where were they getting money from? It Was it, um, uh, were they getting money as Du Bois was from uh, uh, the head of the NA, from Spingarn? or if later on from the uh, foundation, the Garland Fund, was it uh, Chandler Owen and, and um, uh, Chandler Owen and A. Philip Randolph getting money from the uh, Garland Fund and before that from the socialist? Uh, was it uh, communist leaders like Briggs, et cetera, getting money from the communist party? Was it Garvey getting money from the, the steamship line sales and, uh, Liberian construction loan funds, how they get their money often tells, says quite a bit about their politics also. And I try and discuss this in um, volume two. Uh, now, in, I mean, in, in volume two, yeah, chapter one. In volume two, I talk about how Harrison goes on a speaking tour of Washington, D.C., and it's an influential speaking tour. And I quote from some of the people who both heard him and from government officials who are monitoring him. And why it's particularly important is later in that year, cities across the country, major cities like Washington, Chicago, et cetera, erupted in the face of violence uh, as troops returned home and everything and after World War I. And uh, some of these people saw the influence of Harrison's uh, talks on the masses as being significant and they were not gonna just take things the way they were before and stand them. And we go into that in, in volume two. Um, in volume three, I talk about Harrison's next newspaper venture. Uh, he last publishes the, the, um, voice, uh, the uh, voice in 1919, January, but in uh, July to December, 1919, another publication appears it's called The New Negro, and Harrison becomes principal editor for August, September, and October. And it's an, again, it's emphasizing New Negro radicalism. And in the uh, August 1919 issue, uh, Harrison has an editorial entitled Our Larger Duty uh, and described the principal task of the New Negro as the development of the international consciousness of the darker races, races especially of the Negro races. Uh, in the August 1919 uh, New Negro, as the Currents Flow editorial, Harrison proclaimed a new Negro a fate accompli. Negroes were uh, teaching untime, uh, were rejecting unmanly teaching. The new Negro was identifying himself with every progressive and radical movement, was uncompromising and nonpartisan, and owed nothing to any political parties, as the colored men assuming to lead the race should know. And in that same article, he said the Negro, the new Negro is Negro first, Negro last, and Negro always. And regarding the militancy, he said, an eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, and sometimes two eyes, or a half dozen teeth for one is the aim of the new Negro. 
Um, in the in that period, in, in the October 1919 New Negro, for the first time, Harrison publicly stated that Marcus Garvey was effectively publicizing racialism, race consciousness, and racial solidarity as had been advocated by the voice. Chapter four, I talk about Harrison moving to the um, Negro world and reshaping that paper. Uh, in December, Garvey comes and asks Harrison to head a Negro college and edit the Negro world. Harrison reshapes the Negro world and there's also some discussion of a, a Liberian construct uh, commission, which Harrison could not go on, but Harrison had asked him to go on. Uh, and Harrison, uh, Garvey had also asked Harrison to accept the presidency or principal, uh, principalship of a new college. But ultimately and mainly, Harrison wanted Garvey to take over the reins of the Negro world because he knew what an outstanding journalist he was. And under Harrison's leadership in 1920, the, the Negro world turned into the nation's foremost radical race conscious paper. It also swept the globe and became the world's leading international organ of black thought. The historian Tony Martin considered it the most effective of Garvey's propaganda devices, although he did not realize when Martin was writing that Harrison was the principal editor. Harrison describes in his diary certain steps that he took and he writes, for instance, I began by herding the poetry on page one under the standing feature head poetry for the people. I made that page the magazine page and, and tethered there the literary effusions in which Mr. other editors were so prolific. Then I set work cutting down the heads and the banks and guiding a large portion of the letters into the uh, wastebasket. Two other de defects must not be forgotten. The editorials were almost endless. They should have been terse with point and pungency. Um, he also writes his estimate of Garvey on May 24th, 1924, after having worked with him be, uh, for a while. This is in his diary. And throughout this period, he will enter into his diary, his comments, and they are some of the most insightful comments on Marcus Garvey people will find. I'm not going to go into them in great detail here. I encourage people to read them. Uh, but, you know, it gives people a whole different look, I think, at Garvey and at Harrison a little bit. But I don't think they're mean-spirited. I think they're pretty objective and uh, really helps to understand what was going on in that period. Um, but one thing he, he described uh, how in the early years, when Harrison was going strong, he shared he shared his podium. He'd invite people from from his meetings over to Garvey's meetings and stuff. But when Garvey had gone on and was starting to rise in importance, and Harrison was struggling, he didn't receive a similar courtesy. Um, so he, then he goes on to say, reviewing all this, Harrison concluded the first big defect then in Mr. Garvey's makeup is the size of his soul. He's spiritually as well as intellectually a little man. That is why he doesn't want around him men who are not who are of larger girth either way, way. If he gets them, he does not utilize them in any way which would aid, simplify, or modify his plans and notions. If he can use them as his hired as his hired bravos, then so far to good. Elaborating further on this, Harrison in his personal copy of Jerome Dowd's book, The Negro Races, underlined Dowd's comments on how in primitive societies 
the king is the most gaudily dressed, and how his subjects are inferior, seek in all possible ways to flatter him and manage and magnify his greatness. They fawn at his feet and lavish upon him thousands of complimentary phrases and thousands of little attentions with the hope of receiving some crumbs from his royal tables or of escaping some exaction. Harrison compared the first to Garvey's imperial costumes. There's a picture in the book uh, of I Am Two, you'll see, and people are probably familiar with those costumes. And second to what he refers to as the Garvey retinue of sycophants. With that, this is a good place to put a pause. We're going to return next week with the last half of the legacy presentation on Hubert Harrison. And for you history geeks like me, you definitely don't want to miss that one. We're going to see you on the other side. Have a great week.